you know, I try and keep, frankly, my my mouth shut and my ears open because right. I think listening is underrated. There you go. You know, we should listen to them and 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 listen to what they say and take them at their word. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up after this week's midterm elections. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with author Catherine Stewart. Her book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is an outstanding read. And we talked to her about the election and how Christian nationalism shaped these midterms. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hello. Well, we made it. I mean, you, you did <laughs> better than I did. <laughs> well, only one of us cried last night. It was in a fetal position. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I might have medicated and gone to bed at eight thirty. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but we live in Oklahoma, we so do. there was good reason. Yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, yeah, midterms have come. Midterms have gone. But uh, as of this recording, still some. Uh, Unanswered questions, I guess. Uh, the uh, control of the U.S. Congress is still up in the air, both the House and the Senate. We do know for certain that the Senate race down in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is heading to a runoff. So that's going to be interesting. So, uh, you know, a lot of shocking things. We can talk about those later in the pod after we interview uh, Catherine. But um, the red wave never, never came. Uh, the thing that I am so happy about, it's we don't done. have to, we, well, we don't have to watch any more political ads. Okay. First of all, you need to clarify that because you just aged us. We don't actually watch commercials. You need to say that. Well, okay. No, but no, no, we no, no, do no, no. Let me, be, because we're in hotels. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly when, what I sh- should have prefaced that. When we're in hotels and you turn on the TV or whatever, you're forced to sit and watch them. Normally we don't. And we've been in Kansas. We've been in Georgia. Um, Texas, uh, you've been in Alabama. Mm-hmm. We've been in several southern states, and so we've been forced to ingest many political ads. Right, and right. it's the absurdity. It's a whooping. It <laughs> it's just, it's baffling. Yeah, it is. But, so, but no more ads for a while, thank goodness. Except if you're in Georgia, then sorry. So, yeah. It's been, it's been rough. It's been a rough 24 hours. We, um, we're just getting ready to record earlier, and we got a phone call from a friend, a dear friend, who mm. just lost her grandmother uh, this past weekend, and then t- today her mother was found unresponsive and is, is on a ventilator in ICU, and our prayers go out to this family, but it just... So we did not record earlier. We ran to the hospital and sat with them for a little while, but... um it just feels like there's a lot. There's a lot of heaviness in the world, yeah, um, per, both personally and um, nationally. And so I thought maybe we could just start out with something a little light. Oh, good. We're not taking a quiz, are we? It is not a quiz. Thank God. It's not a quiz. <laughs> um, but I, 10 minutes ago, gave Mitch an assignment. And I said, if you were running for office... Mm-hmm. What would your 
campaign platform be? And we've each come up with a list. These are all just for fun, guys. This is nothing serious. Of course, we want world peace. Of course, we want to feed all everyone and give health care and all these things. This is just for fun. So, for fun, what are your campaign platforms? You okay, so I took the assignment, and I do have some platforms, but I also have some slogans. So, let me, we'll just, we'll You're alternate. You're overachiever. I know. Seriously. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, here's my first one. Turn America blush and bashful. <laughs> Shout out to Steel Magnolias. <laughs> you, you do know that Weezer is like one of my heroes, yeah, right? Yeah, she I is. Mean, I want to be her when I grow yeah, up. Yeah, so forget this red, blue, and purple stuff. Let's go. Let's I mean, go let's, blush and bashful. let's go blush and bashful. Okay, let's just do it. Uh, how about you? What's one you have? Okay, so. One of my first ones, and this is something we just experienced 10 minutes, oh, like 20 minutes ago as we were coming home from the hospital. Sonic receipts will be banned. <laughs> when I order a 99 cent soda from Sonic, I do not need a paper receipt. It is difficult enough to deal with the straw trash in my car. <laughs> That's a good Stop one. Stop giving me a receipt. I ordered it on the app. I know. I have the record of it. Mm -hmm. I don't need a paper receipt. And, and are you going to bring it back? I mean, that's Same goes for CVS. <laughs> oh, my don't, gosh. I don't need it. Don't need the mile of paper. I really don't. I'm, I'm already contributing to the um, waste in the planet by mm -hmm. getting the sonic soda with my styrofoam cup. I apologize. I don't need the paper, too. I agree. Okay. I agree. So, um, so this one is a little personal, and I hope that... Oh, it no. Yeah, but... Uh, I would run on a platform to ban olives and restrict the use of ranch dressing. <laughs> okay, first of all, if you restrict the use of ranch dressing, you are doomed. You I won't can get just forget it. You can stop right now because you will never, ever win. Oh, and also I will outlaw deviled eggs. <laughs> oh, now you've gone too far. Okay. Now you have gone too far. <laughs> Because my deviled eggs are amazing. Okay, well, I'll take your word for they that. They are. You just don't like the smell when you open I do the refrigerator. Not. I, do I don't not. blame you. They do stink, but they're good. Okay, so I am going to say that we as a, as a nation are going to collectively agree, and if I'm elected, it will be mandated, that we all donate our old cars to Cars for Kids <laughs> so that we never, ever, ever, ever have to hear the jingle again. Hey, I'm all for that. That's great. Okay. So, All right. So another one I've got is I want to restructure the entire tax system so that when Americans have to pay taxes, they can pay with poker chips. Okay. <laughs> what about monopoly money? Does that I would be too? I would say monopoly money or poker chips. I, I think that it kind of makes a little bit more fun. I mean, it, you know, if you got if you're paying, maybe your I'm not sure it's going to fix any potholes. <laughs> but okay, Papa, <laughs> you go with your pep. Between your ranch dressing and your poker chips. Oh, I've got another old man uh, complaint too. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. All right, so I'm going to ban any sort of FaceTime or speakerphone conversations in public without uh, ear. Earbuds, oh, AirPods, earphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cannot tell you how often we are in a in an airport mm -hmm. or in a public venue where people are either FaceTiming or talking on a speakerphone, like out loud yeah. with no yeah. AirPods in. Of it's, course, unless they're listening to Good Faith Weekly, then well, they sure you know, they, they do it loud and turned proud. up a little bit. I yeah. mean, <laughs> we can embarrass ourselves in front of everybody. It's fine. That's right. Well, speaking of sound, here's one I have. 
limit the the sound in restaurants, the music in restaurants. Oh my god! Because it's just too loud these days. You and I will die on this hill, <laughs> and I know it makes us so old. But we found a restaurant a, a couple months ago in Kansas City that had it was the coolest place. Mm-hmm. If I could remember the name of it right now, I would say it and give them a plug. But the vibe was great. It was southern. You know, I mean, fried chicken and, you know, biscuits and gravy. It was amazing. And I told Mitch, I was like, oh, my gosh. And listen, they've got a great playlist. And it's at a reasonable volume. I know. I will I will visit that restaurant. <laughs> we put that in the Yelp uh, review. <laughs> <laughs> we did. No. Uh, all right, you got another one? Okay, hang on. Let me look at my list. Okay. So I am fully, fully supportive of... um just gender neutral bathrooms Mm -hmm. in public. You use the restroom that you feel most comfortable in. Okay. Fully supportive. Let me say that. But all homes should have gender specific bathrooms. (laughs) I raised two boys and lived with a husband. And I will tell you that, that, Yes, a, a home should have a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom. Okay, that's, so that's fair. That, I will run on that, that platform. That is fair. So, so if I am elected, I want to make the promise to create a new department, and it's going to be the Department of the Internet. Okay. <laughs> because, I mean, I mean, halfway serious, I think, but because it's just such a prominent part of our lives now. And there, I mean, I, I know that there are government agencies that oversee it, but uh, I think it needs its own dedicated uh, department. And I am going to appoint Secretary Shannon, the 12-year-old kid in his parents' basement, as the new secretary of the department <laughs> of the internet. Yes. <laughs> Shannon will do a fabulous job. Okay, so my next one is... All women's pants, skirts, and dresses will have pockets. Yeah, I can't speak to that one. I'm winning on that one. That's <laughs> okay. the end. Every one of our female listeners out there right now just said, Amen, hallelujah, uh, I, you have my book. I, I heard that. I, I heard guarantee that. you. Okay. So here is my final one. Okay. And it is not necessarily a platform, but it's my slogan for Randall 2024. Mm-hmm. Simply this. Make America great again. 1491. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have ended last with that one, but I have one more on my list that I feel like is super important. Okay, let's hear it. we need to say. Henceforth, we will ban cilantro, sweet pickles, and cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> Let it we be will said. never ban a people group. We will never ban, mm-hmm. you know, someone who wants to come to the country, but we will ban cilantro, sweet pickles, and cucumbers. I like it. There I you like go. It. I and like we it. will have all the ranch dressing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I was going to also suggest, you know, like building a wall around Mar-a-Lago. So... <laughs> Oh, you know, I can get on board with that. <laughs> or even putting a dome on it or something. I mean, you know, I could go for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure so, I'll think of some more that yeah. were even better as soon yeah. as we stop recording. Yeah. This so, is hey, such a last minute thing. Hey, let, listeners, let us know what your 
platform or slogan might be if you were to run uh, for public office? Because I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, next, Missy and I sit down with author Catherine Stewart of The Power Worshippers, and it is a great conversation that you're not going to miss. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we got a very special guest with us. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and author who covered religious liberty, politics, policy, and education for over a decade. Her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is a rare look inside the machinery of the movement that brought Donald Trump to power. Stewart's journalism appears in the New York Times op-ed, NBC, The New Republic, and the New York Review of Books. Catherine, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's great to be in conversation with you both. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Catherine, let's just unpack this week. <laughs> we had Man, you're just jumping right in, I aren't mean, you? I mean, I'm, you're I'm, not ignoring the donkey or the elephant in the room, so go I'm ahead. I'm trying to cope right now. <laughs> so, we just had the uh, midterms. At the time of this recording, nothing... Um, we know that the House is likely going to the Republicans. We're not sure about the Senate yet. Um, I believe I just heard that uh, the Warnock um, Walker Walker race is going into a, a runoff. So tell us, based on what we know so far, what have we learned? Well, what we've learned so far is that, you know, many Americans have questioned whether the Republican Party is going to reject the language of uh Christian nationalism, this sort of exclusionary religious nationalism, or whether it's going to continue to exploit religion, uh, to divide Americans, to drive the kind of extreme polarization we're seeing in our politics today, um, to continue to spread misinformation, election lies, et cetera, conspiracism. And the answer, I think, is that there's no immediate prospect for reform, unfortunately, even among Republicans who won their races and were not endorsed by Mr. Trump. I'm thinking about Ron DeSantis. Um, they succeeded often by doubling down on Trumpist and Christian nationalist messaging and methods. So like DeSantis, for instance, put out this promo ad saying that God sent him to save Florida and the nation. Have you guys seen that? Yes. Yeah. I have it's not. It's really astonishing. For anybody who's listening and hasn't seen it, just Google it now. It's kind of jaw-dropping, and you, you think it's a parody, but it's not. DeSantis and his people know that Christian nationalism is the road to power in today's Republican Party. Mm. And they also know that when faith leaders denounce his abuse of religion, uh, and say, this doesn't represent the gospel, though as we understand it, you're exploiting religion to divide Americans. Leaders of the Christian nationalist movement are going to really quickly reinterpret this as an attack on God, an attack on religion, and an attack on themselves. And they use it to stoke paranoia among the rank and file. So um, even though Mastriano uh, lost his, his uh, lost against Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you have other figures such as um, you know, DJ Vance, who has was once a never Trumper and who is sort of a member of the, you know, went to a coastal elite college that he's always bashing, 
and went, you know, doubled down on, on Christian nationalism and Trumpism. And he's, he's won, uh, DeSantis won. Uh, the astonishing thing about Georgia, look, the results aren't in yet. But 88, I read a statistic for exit poll that said 88% of white evangelicals supported Walker. And that just shows that this is pure politics. This is not, Christian nationalism is not a religion. It's not about theology. Walker it, um, had multiple children by multiple women, multiple abortions. Uh, he's, uh, I believe he's been accused of um, spousal abuse or, you know, he's been, he's lied about a number of things. And yet 88% of people who claim to stand for family values are voting for this um, this candidate. And it, and it's really shocking. It shows the sort of moral hollowness of the movement overall. This is a movement that claims to stand for the American family, but in fact, they're driving support for politicians who, are, who frankly make it harder for many American families to succeed. Well said. You know, one of the things that uh, you know we, we gathered from the election this week is that it did appear that those who were extreme uh, were rejected by the voting populace. Uh, there were some instances where they were elected, but overall it looked like there was a lot of pushback. Now, Christian nationalism, and we're going to talk about the book here in a little bit because it's just absolutely brilliant, but Christian nationalism was certainly on the ballot this midterm. We have tried to define it here at Good Faith Media as this mythology that the United States was created as a Christian nation and Christians should be ruling or governing over uh, the entire country. What makes Catherine, what makes this so different than any other period of history? Because this, there's something different about this brand of Christian nationalism. Well, Christian nationalism is, on the one hand, as you said, a set of ideas and ideology. But on the other hand, it's a political movement and an organized quest for political power. And what makes this moment different is that this movement has invested in a very dense organizational infrastructure for decades. It's extremely well organized. So um, the movement consider the movement consists of uh, right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, networking networking organizations that get the leadership of different organizations on the same page and bring them together with big funders of the movement legislative initiatives, data initiatives, a far vast, you know, right wing, I would say, uh, often fact free messaging sphere that spreads conspiracism and paranoia. And um, the movement invested in the different features of this organizational infrastructure for many decades, it was sort of hiding in plain sight. It's not like they're hiding. It's like, we're not listening. Uh, for decades, they've been telling us that they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in the principles of equal rights and pluralism that represent the best of the American promise. And I think sometimes it's really hard for us to listen. We tend to want to reframe what people are saying in ways that make us feel more comfortable. But as a consequence, a lot of folks have just simply not taken this movement seriously as a political force, and it, it really should be. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Now, not only were there politicians on the ballot uh, this week, abortion rights was on the ballot as well. In fact, in uh, four different states, Michigan, California, Vermont, and Kentucky, voters had their say when it came to abortion rights. The first three states enshrined abortion in their state constitution. Kentucky rejected an amendment that would have said there was no right to the procedure at a state level. So, That was promising for those of us who believe in women's reproductive health. Do you see this as a sign that maybe faith-based voters are shifting on issues such as abortion rights and marriage equality? Well, the the culture war issues, look, for many years, leaders, they know if you can get people to vote on a couple of binary black and white issues, um, you can control their vote. So they directed a lot of messaging around abortion, same-sex marriage, these sort of identity, sexuality uh, issues, because, um, you know, um, sexuality and sec- those kinds of issues are almost like rocket fuel to the movement. But, of course, they endorse a much broader, you know, economic policy, social policies, foreign policies, and the like. But abortion was like the number one issue for them. I think it for, for the true believers in the movement, like for movement leaders, it remains sure. a huge issue. I went to this National Pro-Life Summit this past uh, uh, January in Washington, D.C., and movement leaders like Kirsten Hawkins of Americans United for Life said, well, what we want to do is in- introduce an amendment banning abortion all, f- all, f- you know, all across the country in every state, but it's going to take some time to set that up. And uh, a head of the Alliance Defending Freedom said very much the same thing. But they know that they need to look. Abortion rights are extremely popular among Americans, uh, Christian and non-Christian, religious and non-religious alike. Um, and um, an overwhelming majority of Americans support abortion rights uh, in in some form. You know, we, we already have certain limitations in place, et cetera. But um the overwhelming majority recognized that the right to choose is a really important part of women's reproductive health. So um, once they overturned Roe versus Wade, I think for the leaders, there was a bit of a fear of the backlash and they haven't pushed abortion too hard prior to the midterm elections. They sort of backed off for a little bit. They're very strategic. I mean, this movement is nothing if not tactical. You know, mm-hmm. but they create other culture war issues that they've been pushing very hard. The issue of trans sports. Right. Like, I don't know about you guys, I get mail every single day about the threat that there might be some trans kids, you know, in a sports team in my daughter's public school. And, um, you know, whatever one thinks of those issues, our country is facing massive issues relating to mm-hmm. economic security, related to our foreign policy, related to our infrastructure, related to health care. Um, and, uh, and, and those issues are like, you ever know, see what, like the cat toy that shines a little red laser beam on the floor and your cat jumps after it. Yes. That's what those, those culture war issues, they, they push these issues every single day. So they get people talking about this little thing over here. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking at all this other stuff that's happening over there. The stuff that's really happening around them, the kitchen, you know, kitchen table issues that that really matter to the economic uh, security of our families and the and the and the health of our Yeah, they country. would rather talk about issues like that rather than 
you know, Exxon and BP making billions and billions of profits uh, in the first quarter. So that that really affects all Americans uh, when, when that happens. It's absolutely true. I mean, climate issues, that's yeah, another right. thing. 100%. Yeah, climate denial. So. so, Catherine, your book, The Power Worshippers, that came out a few years ago, is really just as relevant today as absolutely. when it came out. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a story from, I believe it was the introduction, um, that I felt like was just such a great glimpse and an overview of what is happening within Christian nationalism, but you talked about um, your uh, your child's school sending out a notification about a Bible study and also note where you live, because I think that's important to the story. Sure. That's, you know, in 2009, my husband and I were living in Santa Barbara, California. Our daughter was uh, in the first grade. Our son was a baby and something happened that seemed like nothing at first, right? We learned that a Good News Club was coming to our public elementary school. Now, Good News Clubs are after-school clubs designed to convert children in their very earliest years of learning into a deeply reactionary form of evangelical Christianity. We're talking little kids here. So a centerpiece of the program of these Good News Clubs is called the Wordless Book. It has no words, just shapes and pictures and colors, and it's used to convert children in public schools who are too young to read. The clubs are designed to convince them that they're going to go to hell if they don't conform to the club's version of Christianity, that they need to attend the supposedly right kind of church. So in our community, I could see that these clubs confused little kids into thinking that their public school endorsed this religion. Adults leading the clubs were using their position inside the school to get kids attending the clubs to target their non-Christian classmates or those attending the supposedly wrong kinds of churches for what I could really only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. So here's something interesting that happened. Our church was down the road from Westmont College, and um, it's an evangelical college. So the parent body at our school is perhaps a third to half evangelical. But these parents and most of my friends who are like moms in the public school, most of them were Westmont affiliated. They did not want a good news club coming to our school. So they met with the good news club leaders and they said, we too are evangelical. We believe in the great commission, but this isn't right for our public school. We'd like to offer you free and better space in the church, literally next door to the school. I mean, yeah. it's a beautiful church who wouldn't want to be there at the same time. Right. Right. For free. And the Good News Club leaders declined. They insisted on being in the public school. This really, it was really astonishing to me. I just raised alarm bells. I thought, okay, why don't they want to be in the church? Why do they need to be in the public school? What do they really believe? And, you know, how is it legal and possible for them to be in public elementary schools, given our separation of church and state? So I started researching Good News Clubs and the organization behind them, which is called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. I discovered that these Good News Clubs had only been held, uh, had been excluded from public schools because of establishment clause concerns, you know, separation of church and state until 2001, when they won a key Supreme Court decision called Good News Club versus Milford Central School. That decision, I, I researched this sort of legal uh, legal strategy that had that had led to that Supreme Court win. Mm -hmm. 
uh, by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the right. leading legal advocacy groups of the Christian you know, nationalist movement. And what they did is they ran a very careful, very strategic legal strategy over about 15 years, bringing the right cases to the right courts to put into place these novel legal building blocks that would recast religion, um, that would de- you know destroy establishment clause concerns and um, cast religion as just another form of speech like any other. I mean, it sort of begs the question, is religion just speech from a certain point of view? Well, if it is, what is the justification for its special tax privileges that other non-religious nonprofits don't enjoy? What is the justification for its exemption from anti-discrimination law, Mm -hmm. which other non-religious nonprofits are not allowed to engage in? Religions are allowed to discriminate against women, LGBT Americans, uh, other people of other um, uh, racial identities, religious groups. They can do that because they're religions. They have a special... um, a special status in our constitution, but this is why church and state should be kept separate. Mm. But anyway, that's sort of a long story <laughs> as to how I fell down this rabbit hole. <laughs> I, um, I, I end up, you know, going to good news clubs from coast to coast. I went to the national convention of the child evangelism fellowship. I heard in inter interfaith marriages described um, by their keynote speaker as interracial marriages Mm -hmm. and worthy of condemnation. I heard uh, Catholics referred to as not Christians. I heard Congregationalists referred uh, and and, um, liberal uh, Presbyterians referred to as, you know, members of a a, quote, new age religion, like the contempt for people who are not like them was really astonishing. And here's the thing that really shocked me and took, a lot of time for me to wrap my head around, even as this movement was exploiting public schools, using taxpayer-funded facilities to set up their clubs and confuse little kids into thinking that their religion has the you know, cloak of authority of public schools, even as they're doing all this, they describe public education with contempt. They called our schools scenes of spiritual battle. They called um, the mission fields and our children the harvest. They were they I remember one of the keynote speakers said knocked on down like knock down all doors all barriers to the you know like to the the public schools and take the gospel to this open mission field now not later you know like get down on the mat and kick down the doors like there was a lot of really aggressive language and I came to recognize that the attack on public education that well, the good news clubs were one just one small part of a larger attack on public education, but the attack on public education was just one small part of a much larger attack on American constitutional democracy. And so that was about 15 years ago. Yeah. And I started, you know, really researching this movement, its infrastructure, its its legal strategy. Um, and the more I learned, the more concerned I became. As I was listening to that, and you start the story just talking about this group that wanted to have this Bible study, and you tell the story about, you know, offering the space next door to the church, and you kind of went on, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, and then you said Good News Club, and I just thought, oh my goodness, I remember the notes in my kids' folders for Good News Club. I remember some of their friends going. I didn't know at the time what, you know, exactly what all was involved, and never sent my kids, but it just was like, this. it's everywhere. You know, it's fun sometimes when... Uh, Christian nationalism, this kind of thing shows up 
in our backyards or in our neighborhood schools, we just think it's a local initiative driven by local personalities. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't think anything of it, but it's really just one, if you really follow it, follow, you know, it's like looking at the, the leg of the elephant or the hair on the elephant's leg, but missing the elephant itself, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we, when I was reading your book, another complimentary book to yours would be The Shadow Network by Ann Nelson. And what you said a moment ago, this they're very tactical in their strategies and they know what they're doing. And I mean, and now we're seeing the results of it. I mean, you said it very clearly as you line, you laid out the, the legal strategies behind the good news club. And their point is to have all these test cases across the country to eventually end up at the Supreme court. So, uh, I mean, that, that is such an important, uh, truth that we need to grasp that this just isn't, you know, a bunch of, you know, people of faith or preachers or lawyers, they are working in tandem together to push this, this really radical agenda. So you mentioned that uh, you, you attend all these meetings. And in the book, you talk about going to the pastor's briefing in Unionville, North Carolina. Uh, Catherine, do you just like to stay angry? Because <laughs> I wondered as I was reading, as I was hearing about all of the places you went and sat in and observed, I thought, how in the world did you do this? I mean, I and you must be a saint because I would have stood up and yelled something, but uh, you're there taking notes. I'm so glad you're Good doing for it. You. Yes. Yeah. So, I would love to hear more about yeah, that. Yeah. So, so tell us know. a little bit about when you go into these settings, you know, You've, you've already told us a little bit about something or some of them that you've been to, but you know, what is the atmosphere? I mean, they're just out in the open now, you know, just I mean, used to, they would try to kind of lock it away, but now it's out in the open. And then also we're a couple of way, a couple of weeks away from Thanksgiving, Catherine, we're all going to be sitting around tables with our family members who disagree with us violently <laughs> on these issues. Yes, we are. <laughs> How can we talk about these issues and what's going on in our country productively. So tell us a little bit about all these events you're going to, and then give us, give us some tools to, to get through Thanksgiving. Okay. Well, we'll start with Unionville and a lot of these other places. Look, I just go places that I'm allowed to go. You guys could go too. Um, I am not on staff anywhere. I purchase a ticket like everyone else. And, you know, I just go around places I'm allowed to go and I use my own name. And, you know, I try and keep, frankly, my my mouth shut and my ears open. Because right. I think listening is underrated. Mm, there you go. I think, um, I think, you know, we should listen to them and, and, and listen to what they say and take them at their word. They've been telling us what we want to do. I mean, this is a movement. They're very clear. They're like, we'd like to do X. And then they go to do it, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, but yeah, Unionville, North Carolina was fascinating. I went to that church um, uh, with a friend of mine who is a, a, a pastor in a church that was a member of the Co- Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And we were there to get, you know, I guess, information in advance of an election. And, you know, there's no past, even though somebody in the beginning, I can't remember who gave one of this, you know, we did not endorse any political party. This is nonpartisan, et cetera, et cetera. There's no pastor who came away, and there were dozens of pastors in the room. There's no pastor who came away with any doubt about which way their congregation was expected to vote. And they were told that they were needed to turn out their congregations. Look, they know if you can get the pastors, 
you can get some subset of their congregation. So they get these pastors together. They give them very sophisticated messaging tools and materials. They give them voter guides, sermon starters, which frankly is a pastor. It's a hard job, you know, like it makes your job easier. You know, voter guides, sermon starters, videos to air at church. Then they give, um, they were handing out instructions for how to form something called a community impact team, which is so that the pastors don't have to say you need to vote for this candidate or these are the issues you need to vote on, et cetera. But if they can get members of a team of congregants who are very politically active, motivated, you know, connected to other congregants and motivated to turn out the vote, they can get the congregants to do it. But it's the pastor, you know, with a book that like it's like a 140 page book of tabbed material about how to every aspect covering every aspect of how to create a community impact team manual. Mm. And um, it was an astonishingly sophisticated document. And I thought, this is amazing. At another event, um, I met a woman who was a member of a community impact team at her church. And she talked all about how they were messaging around abortion and all the terrible sex ed they're teaching kids in the schools and, you know, biblical economics, which is the sort of fusion of reactionary religion with far-right economics, like libertarian, right. almost libertarian economics. So um, I went to another similar event. Um, so that event in Unionville was part of an organization called Watchmen on the Wall. It's a family research council affiliated organization. They have tens of thousands of affiliated pastors nationwide. They do events all across the country, especially focusing on swing states in advance of key elections. I went to another similar initiative called Faith Wins. It's very much along the same lines. They do events for pastors all around the country. They've done hundreds of them, reaching thousands of pastors. And at that event, David Barton spoke. You guys know who David oh, Barton is. Oh, yes. <laughs> so he was there with his son, Tim, who was also doing presentations. Chad Connolly of the Council for National Policy was there telling these pastors, y'all need to get yourself out there and you need to get your people out there. And then there was another pa pastor pre presenting who said, the church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. That was just a chilling line for yeah, me. It is. And then, yeah. And then with them, they had this guy named Hogan Gidley, who is a former member of the Trump administration. And he was running some quote unquote elections integrity project. And he was there to spread disinformation and lies about the election. So he goes on and on about how the election was stolen and a bunch of dead people voting. And then he said, you guys all saw all that, you know, corruption in Arizona, didn't you? This was weeks after the Republican led investigation by that Republican group, the Cyber Ninjas. Remember them? Yep. Oh, yeah. They, read, they led this investigation to see if there were any irregularities in the voting. And they turned up nothing, maybe a couple dozen extra votes for uh, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. But this guy was still messaging on the lie yeah, that course. they turned up corruption, yeah. even though they turned up nothing. Sure. And it would have been, they reported it, everybody reported it, nothing. And, you know, but the, you know, the lie is too valuable to this movement to abandon just because it's not true. I think, you know, one thing I wouldn't have predicted about this movement, like January 6th, honestly, wasn't that surprising given mm -hmm. The run-up to January 6th, the fact that so many religious right leaders were spreading lies of the stolen election, the Jericho marches, um, right. sort of coordinated 
you know, buy-in of, of Trump's lies. But the thing that really astonished me afterwards is that Republican establishment would stand behind the insurrectionists mm-hmm. and that the Republican establishment would actually stand behind Trump as even as he has become a national security risk, you know, absconding with hundreds or is it thousands of documents pertaining to our national security and leaving them strewn all over his house and in Mar-a-Lago where any spy from any foreign country could find their way in as long as, you know, they look a a certain way or or say the right things or donate enough money. I mean, it just, that part of this is what's really astonishing to me. This this is a movie where the leaders could have chosen to like country over party and instead they chose you know, they chose their movement over democracy very clearly. Well, a lot of people are taking some positives out of this week's midterms. The run for 2024 began Wednesday at 12.01 a.m. And so uh, looking ahead, Catherine, how do you see, because Christian nationalism did not go away. I mean, just because there were some strides made this week, it's still there, and it's going to be a powerful tool over the next two years. So put on your your profit hat for a second, and what do you see over the next two years? Is Christian nationalism going to continue to grow, be more influential, less influential? And what can we do as people of good faith to offer a counter-narrative? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't make predictions of the future, but one thing I am going to have my eye on is the Conservative Action Project memos. The Conservative Action Project is um, a part is affiliated with the Council for National Policy, which you guys are very familiar with, that sort of connective tissue of much of the movement, one of its uh, key networking organizations. And they issue these memos signed by many leaders of the movement infrastructure, many of the organization leaders. And those memos seem to indicate like we've made a decision. This is the way that we're going to go. So like, for instance, um, after uh, Trump was found to have all these documents in his house, they issued a memo saying that Christopher Ray and Merrick Garland should be impeached. And this is partisan attack and nothing but, you know, politics. It's kind of astonishing. So I will be keeping my eye on those kinds of things. Uh, And I continue to go to the meetings and gatherings. I don't think you can really know what's happening unless you are in those spaces and talking to, you know, listening to leaders of the movement, because what they might say if they ever get invited on CNN is one thing. What they say when they're in their own spaces, they're very honest about what they want. I mean, they really, I know they're getting started, just getting started, not just with the attack on abortion, which they want to, you know, bring to all 50 states and potentially introduce some kind of constitutional amendment, maybe through a constitutional convention, changing our constitution, but they're going to go after a range of uh, attack on a range of individual rights, including the right to vote. Mm. Um, Something that, um, you know, they, they know very well is that they're in the minority. I mean, here's the good news. And that's why they want to suppress the right to vote. The good news is that those of us who reject the politics of conquest and division are in the majority. Yep. We have the power. We really need to use it. Um, we need to, you know, you mentioned earlier about speaking to family members, and I think we all have family members where there are some difficult conversations. And I think it's important um, 
to breathe, to remember to breathe, to listen, to be calm, and to find common ground. And I think, look, we can find common ground with anyone, whether it's, do you care about your kid's school? Do you care about health care? Do you care about the economy? I mean, I think a lot of folks who are lending support to this movement don't recognize that it's allied with, you know, the sort of biblical economics that it's allied with mm-hmm. are intensifying extreme wealth at the very top and making it so much harder for so many Americans' families to succeed. We, we've seen the consequences of this with, you know, um, very well-documented uh, disparities in income inequality. It's, a, you know, a, a lot of the sort of anxiety that drives support for Christian nationalism, I believe, is driven by status loss. A lot of people, whether it's, you know, white people who wanted to be on top and all of a sudden America's multiracial, they don't get it, and or, you know, but it's not always like that ugly, right? Sometimes it's really just about, well, my parents were able to work and buy a house and, you know, my mom could, you know, take some time off from work when she had kids or, you know, I didn't have to worry about whether our schools were adequately funded and, you know, and they didn't have to worry about this and that. And now it's harder for me to make it work for my family. I think that that's, that's true for a lot of folks and and that drives support for this movement too. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Catherine, it has been a delight chatting with you again. Her book is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. You're going to want to go to wherever you buy your books, so your local bookstore or online and pick up a copy because it is absolutely right. Great if you want to know more about Catherine's work and her stories and journalism. Uh, her website is katherinestewart.com me. And so she'll want to make certain to check her out. But before we let you go, Catherine, Missy's got one last question. So Catherine, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and your research and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Well, the more to tell is that there are things we can do as individuals like vote and get all of our friends and family to vote. But there are things we can only do when we join together um, invest in uh, in the infrastructure of democracy, defend voting rights, um, support different uh, groups that are doing things that are in alignment with your values, and above all, bringing to light the dangers of religious nationalism in America. I love that. What a way to end. Thank you so much. It's been a delight, Catherine. Thank you so much. It has been a really interesting conversation that we just had with Catherine Stewart. Um, What stuck out most to you, Missy, about uh, our conversation with Catherine? I think, first of all, we could have just listened to her for a long time. I mean, her just time that she spent going and sitting in spaces and listening to folks. And I think, like she said, you know, sometimes we just need to listen. And she's done that. Mm -hmm. And um, her book obviously lays lays out um you know her research and so we definitely could have gone on much longer with her we did you know post recording still continue our conversation with her um you know if you if you want to know the history and the specifics of what's going on in a timeline she's a great one to read her book um and nelson's shadow network that we bring up um is also a great read 
Yeah. We've been having, I mean, we've had this steady stream of guests talking about Christian nationalism and uh, primarily because the midterms were, were this week. Uh, but what I found very interesting about Catherine's book was it was published two years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was published last year in 2021. Okay. And uh, so she was doing all the research, you know, during the 2020 presidential election and all of that and, and watching all this unfold. But her story and her points in the book are even more germane today, I think, because of what we saw after the election in 2020. Of course, the insurrection on January 6th and then the lead up to these midterms. Um, it just it was just another great insight to what's going on. And man, her story about the Good News Club. What'd you think of that? Yeah, I think circling back real quick, mm-hmm. what what she said about from from her experience of being in these rooms and in these spaces, not being very surprised about January 6th, but being surprised about the the lack of any leaders, mm-hmm. you know, on the right kind of um speaking out against yeah, it. You know, and that, that she said that was what was surprising and and to me, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's what's even more scary. Right. And I think that's you know, that began to kind of come to light for me uh when Donald Trump was elected president. You know, Trump is who he is. I mean he is a you know a, a a shyster. Uh, he's, <laughs> I had another word there that I had to bring. Find some nice words. <laughs> he's a shyster. He's a con man. You know, he's certainly a narcissist. I mean, he is who he is. But now you what, can't go diagnosing people on the on the. I was going to say the radio. Well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> he's not a good man. But at any rate, what really bothered me was that I didn't realize so many people in the country had they connected with him and there were millions and millions of people who supported him and still support him. And so that was really troubling to me. So, you know, I I think she's onto something when she says, you know, the January 6th shouldn't have surprised us because this is what they've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But what was surprising is how quickly some conservative politicians turned because the night of the insurrection Everybody was trying to get in front of a microphone to condemn it. And then things started to kind of roll out and they began We're to just hear not the, say anything. Right. I think there's a yeah. lot of fear, you know, in yeah. saying something. Hey, like, and I want to say this because, you know, we brought up uh, the Paul Pelosi's attack last week and, you know, just how horrible that was. And some politicians were poking fun at the Pelosi's and making inappropriate remarks. But I want to. I want to call attention to one Republican congressman who did the right thing, and that was Steve Scalise. Uh, Scalise was shot uh, a few years ago uh, while practicing for the congressional baseball game that they have every year. Uh And he came out and had a strong statement in support of the Pelosi's and and denouncing that kind of violence. So I just want to, I want to be reminded and remind the audience that there are still, even though we have deep disagreements on policies and how to take the country forward, I hope that in both parties there, when something like this happens, there are decent stand-up people who say the things like Congressman Salih said. Right. Okay. So circling back, you mentioned the Good News Club. And when I was listening to it was so ironic because I listened to her book this weekend, 
you were out of town and I went on my nervous energy about the midterms led me to clean out closets and cabinets and all this. They look great, by the way. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I was in our closet and cleaning out and I I ran across a box of my old school assignments about the time she was telling the story about, like you said, the Good News Club. And it just rocked me because I remember seeing those notes come home, like I mentioned in the interview, for our kids and come be part of this Good News Club. And I, I didn't really... I mean, I don't know, I didn't pay attention to him, but um, but I remember that, and I remember some of our kids' friends going to this, and I, as she was telling the story in the lead-up, you're thinking, oh, this is crazy and such an outlier situation. I'm like, no, I remember both in Texas and in Oklahoma seeing this, so... But about that time, I also came across a box of my old school assignments. <laughs> oh, this is good. Kids, gather around, gather so, around. Guys, <laughs> I am... Remember when, that uh, uh, in uh, the internal fundamentalist that Missy talked about oh, with the Brian McLaren? Oh, she's about to be all loud and proud. <laughs> you guys, I am mortified that uh, I'm about to read this to you. Um, you may, if you're in the car, make sure you pull over because I this is this am is so embarrassed by this. <laughs> But I found proceed. this project that I did, and I was 12. I was 12 years old. And as we're talking about getting kids in and indoctrinating them, indoctrinating them early, this is super relevant because I wrote in a report that I turned in to a teacher who I want to go find that teacher and apologize. <laughs> I feel, okay, quote, again, 12-year-old me. I feel that if a woman, if, if a woman <laughs> went out and willfully had sex then it's her fault and she should at least have the kid and put it up for adoption. Damn, Ann Coulter. I mean, <laughs> I'm oh sweating just reading that. I I don't know where that came from. I was 12. I didn't know. I mean, I know I knew people in my life who had, had abortions, but I didn't personally know of any situation. Right. It honestly, I mean, in my parents' defense, it wasn't really something we talked about at home. Mm-hmm. I, the only thing I can think is it was church and those types of environments that planted these ideas in my head. And by the time I was 12, I felt empowered enough to write about this in an assignment. Yeah. So you think about this, you think about the Good News Club and things like this, like this is what we're doing to our kids. And somewhere along the way, that got into my psyche as well. And I just, I, there's so much wrong with this quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much wrong with it. Um, I mean, not what glaring is, is the victim blaming here. Mm-hmm. You know, if she chooses, you know, if she willfully has sex, it's her fault. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I cannot believe I wrote this. <sighs> but, and I'm, I agonized over whether to even share it and put it out there. But I think it's important to note that when you bring elementary school kids into an environment where you tell them things like you don't want to go to hell and your church isn't preaching the right kind of gospel and you you know that sticks yeah. clearly it sticks again i don't remember prior to the age of 12 ever talking about this with with my parents right um it's just scary 
Yeah, it is very scary. And, uh, to, and to me, that is the hypocrisy of conservative Christianity. Because we've heard it during the midterm elections, you know, we, we can't, we don't want to have these woke classrooms with these woke teachers, and they shouldn't be teaching theories like uh, critical race theory or, uh, you know, teach the right uh, narrative about the founding of the country. And the reality is, what they really want is to supplant that truth and that accuracy with their own theological uh, conscience. And, and so that is, that's what's frightening to me. Okay, so I feel like at this point, a really great quote from our beloved prophet Moira Rose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we <laughs> go. It's applicable when she says, you are blind to reality, and for that I am most proud. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that's where yeah. the, the power hungry, those who are kind of the orchestrators of, of the, the movement mm-hmm. are, are most proud of that, yeah. that, that people in the masses are blind to reality and they're most proud of that. So anyways, yeah. sorry, no, that, I digress. That's, no, that's <laughs> excellent. Uh, so at any rate, um, you know, it was a, a great interview, this, this whole thing about, uh, the uh, Good News Club. In fact, her first book is entirely about that story. Oh, yeah, and uh, and so it's really well done. But we want to encourage you to, to go pick her book up. It is really, really good, The Power of Worshippers. But uh, just appreciate her spending some time with us Absolutely. today on the pod. So, so, so okay, so. Okay, go ahead. Earlier in the week, as the results were coming in, as we've already mentioned, you weren't doing so good. No. <laughs> but now you're a lot better, so... Well, I mean, thank God for modern medicine and <laughs> distilleries. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm better now. I but I mean our our state, I think, um, is what is so disheartening to me. And uh, we reelected a governor who just fundamentally has some differences from what you and I. Believe. And what's and interesting about, especially in the governor's race, I mean, I talk to Republicans. We have family and friends who are Republicans, and uh, and they were frustrated with our governor. Yes. And they, I mean, they were outspoken about it. Yes. And so it was, it was really mind-blowing. Not that he won, but, but the margin. The margin well, which he won. Well, because we, anyways, we can go into this, and, and I don't think our general audience no. necessarily is into Oklahoma politics, but. Um, but the biggest, it's it, not even the governorship, the biggest disappointment was the state superintendent. Yes. And, and it is so disheartening. And I was talking to a neighbor the other day about this because we don't have kids in public school anymore here. And so I, there's just a lot of guilt involved, but also a lot of just crushing, just devastation for our friends and family who still do have children in the school system. And we have just elected a state superintendent who openly, openly is against public schooling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it it really is frightening. And, you know, we've got two little nephews who are going to be growing up here in Oklahoma and attending public schools. I've got, my brother is a public school uh, teacher. So is uh, his wife. We come from a public school background. And the election of this state superintendent was mind-blowing because this guy is as radical as they get. Mm-hmm. He has talked openly about 
failing public schools. They've been failing for decades. He and the governor have just released uh, what they're calling an executive order to basically break the the teachers' unions. He has openly criticized uh, teachers for talking about history, calling it critical race theory, and wants to rewrite history uh, so that uh, they can teach this whitewashing of history. He has also uh, very, very active in trying to ban certain books from the libraries. And because of his rhetoric, we have gotten phone calls from librarians in the state of Oklahoma who have been threatened with violence. Right. And we're hearing from teacher after teacher saying that they are almost frightened to teach anymore because of what their government, as well as parents, are saying to them in the public schools, and nobody's protecting them, and it is terrifying. And you know, the the funny thing is there's just a subset of, of the population that just, like we've said before, does not get irony, mm-hmm. because one of the things they run on is we're, you know, during COVID when schools shut down, they thought that was wrong. We're going to keep schools open. Oh, but no, we're not because right. we don't like public schools. Yeah. And, and, and like, that, that is, which is it? Yeah. And it's the same thing with vouchers. Um, they are criticizing public schools after year upon year upon year that they have defunded public schools. They've reduced uh, funding to public schools. They have put more and more restrictions on public schools. So they have been strategically trying to implement a failure plan, and then they criticize it. And what do they want to do? They want to privatize everything. And so they want vouchers. And uh, I mean, there's statistics and studies out there that show this does not work. No, we need to be in the business of educating all children. Absolutely. Private schools do not do not have to do that. And so what's going to happen in Oklahoma is you're going to see rural schools close. Um, And that's that is what is so frustrating. And I, I just want to sit down with our friends who live in these rural communities who support individuals like our current governor and now secretary of education, they will be the first one that are harmed when these policies are in place. Right. right. Voting against your own self-interest. Yeah. But anyways, so that was, it was, it was just a kind of a depression. But you're doing time. better now. I'm, I'm doing better. Okay. It's a good thing we didn't have to record last night. <laughs> oh, that would have been podcast gold. <laughs> no, not so much. But we're a couple of days out now. As of this recording, there's yeah. still a lot up in the air, which may be decided once we um, release this. So our apologies if anything is not current. We do need to mention, though, Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day. Day. We yeah. love our veterans, and we have, I know... My father, my grandfather, um, my uncles, um, lots of veterans in our family, and we're just so appreciative of their service and their sacrifice. And we hope that we hope that we do right by them in terms of what they served for and what they fought for. Yeah. And Veterans Day was established in 1919 by a declaration by President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, It was first declared Armist Day and later turned into Veterans Day. And so we just, all of our veterans out there that are listening, we just want you to know we appreciate you. We thank you for the sacrifices that you have made for our country and for us personally. Uh, 
we just we know it's it's difficult. We know that there's a lot of work, and again, the sacrifices that you put in, you and your families. And so, on this Veterans Day, we just want to say thank you. And if you have a veteran in your family, if you have a friend or a coworker who's a veteran, make certain to let them know today how much you appreciate them because they are some of our best. Absolutely. And we need to do what we can to make them proud. All right. So happy Veterans Day, and we'll be back next week. Excellent. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>